you'd remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read from 2 Peter, excuse me, 1 Peter, chapter 5. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Amen. Father God, I pray that you would bless this preaching of your word and receive from our hearts the responses, Father, of worship. You are great, you are awesome, and we do submit ourselves to you. And We just pray that uh, you would anoint me and enable each one of us to have the word quickened to our hearts to sanctify us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the topics that almost never gets preached on is the topic of church government. Uh, people just think, oh, boy, that's so boring, you know, and how is that relevant to our lives at all? And it's unfortunate because it really is a wonderfully practical doctrine and very exciting once you understand uh, what this doctrine is about. And uh, uh, what you believe or what you fail to believe, fail to understand about church doctrine affects uh, your view of the family. And it does so in many different ways, but one obvious way, I think, is that uh, most American churches in the 20th century, not so much in previous centuries, but in the 20th century, has uh, really, I think, robbed the family of the authorities and the rights and the responsibilities that God has given to the family. And the people who have been robbed don't even realize it because they are so used to big church government. Uh, This affects our view of civil government. And uh, we're going to be seeing that in a moment. It affects our views of self-government. Because I think big church government stifles initiative and self-government every bit as much as big civil government does. And so we're going to look at uh, some of the practical implications. When somebody says, who cares, you know, what difference does ecclesiology make? Ecclesiology is just the $10 word for uh, doctrine of the church. They are betraying a total ignorance of the history of freedoms as they have developed in the West because it all related to ecclesiology. Um, at the Witherspoon Institute of Law and Public Policy, Joe Moorcraft said, quote, It is not by coincidence that the freest countries this world has known were religiously Presbyterian at their founding. It is not by coincidence that with the loss of representative Republican churches, there has been a loss of freedoms in our nation. King Charles Stuart I extended his tyranny over church and state, and it was called the Episcopal War. The war for independence was called the Presbyterian Rebellion. And I think as we go through this sermon, you're going to uh, recognize that uh, even Presbyterianism has strayed far afield from the way Presbyterianism was in the 1700s. And with changes in church government, what you begin to have is people, sometimes unconsciously, but sometimes self-consciously, they begin to think differently about the roles of family, church, and state, about their involvement in culture. It does impact us. Uh, Over the last two weeks, I've used America, early America, as a backscape for looking at the limits of civil government as well as looking at the 
the, the biblical qualifications for civil rulers. What I failed to mention to you is that the founding fathers, even the ones who were not Presbyterian, agreed that the Presbyterian principles of church government were best adapted to America's civil government. Uh, some may have done it out of pure pragmatism, but others were absolutely convinced not only of divine right Presbyterianism, but that a, a, a republic was the only biblical way to go in our nation. John Witherspoon, who was a signer of the uh, Declaration of Independence, was also a college press, a professor, a Presbyterian, who had trained many of the founding fathers in the principles of enumerated powers, Delegated powers, limited powers, reserved powers. I mean, that's just standard Presbyterian doctrine. And it ran totally contrary to the ecclesiology of the other denominations. And you may have wondered, how in the world does a boring doctrine like church uh, doctrine uh, become gripping for men who have founded our nation? Well, there's a number of reasons for it. But one of them is that at least one-sixth of the delegates to the Constitutional Convention had been trained by this Presbyterian uh, Witherspoon, and uh, John Eidsmo says about him, quote, John Witherspoon is best described as the man who shaped the men who shaped America. Although he did not attend the Constitutional Convention, he signed the Declaration of Independence, but not that, he goes on to say, his influence was multiplied many times over by those who spoke as well as by what was said. Witherspoon trained 478 influential people in early uh, America and those of his students who were present at the Constitutional Convention, they argued very convincingly that Presbyterian polity, at least some of those principles, need to be carried over into civil government. A second factor is that uh, most of the key principles in the Declaration of Independence and even the wording was taken straight out of the, uh, the Mecklenburg Declaration, which is a, a declaration that was given a little over a year earlier by some Scotch-Irish Presbyterians. It was their own secessionist document, you know, that they had, that they had written up. And uh, you can see the, the connection between uh, those two documents very clearly. And that covenant docu document, that declaration, framed the way the Declaration of Independence was written. You cannot understand either docu a document apart from divine right Presbyterianism. It just does not make sense in light of uh, the Episcopal uh, view of, of, of government authority. It does not make any sense in terms of Methodism or any of the other denominations, with the exception of Congregationalism, which borrowed a lot of the Presbyterianism uh, from the, the Presbyterians. A third factor is that most of the American population was either thoroughly Presbyterian, or at least in the case of the Congregationalists and many of the Baptists, was Presbyterian in terms of the local church government. That has changed hugely. You hardly have any that have, there are a few Baptists that still have Presbyterian church government locally, but it was pervasive. Um, and even the, many of the, the Anglicans, they didn't have a problem with it. For them, it was just a pragmatic, indifferent issue, whether it was Anglicanism or the other, and they thought, well, that does make sense for civil government, so they were able to go along with it. But Dr. Lorraine Bettner said, Quote, it is estimated that of the three million Americans at the time of the American Revolution, and let me just comment for a second. The U.S. Um, uh, Census Bureau says the population was 2.2 million, but we, we can go with this higher figure. He says, uh, it is estimated that of the three million Americans at the time of the American Revolution, 900,000 were of Scotch or Scotch-Irish origin. Most of those were hardcore Presbyterian. 
600,000 were Puritan English, okay, the ones who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, they're Presbyterian. 400,000 were German Reformed or Dutch Reformed. So there's 63.3% of the population, according to his uh, figures there, that were either thoroughgoing Presbyterians or were Presbyterian in their form of uh, local church government. Then he lists some French Huguenots who were also Presbyterian. And so the estimates are between 64% and 86% were at least familiar with the Presbyterian views of the local church. That is bound to affect culture. It is bound to affect culture. A fourth factor was that virtually every American that went to school back in those days had memorized not only the shorter catechism, but they had to either study and in many cases had to memorize the Westminster Confession and the larger catechism. I can't imagine memorizing larger catechism, but many of them uh, had to do that. And uh, just to give you a little perspective, let me give you some fun statistics that were uncovered. In the years right before the Revolution, there were five million copies of the Shorter Catechism that were printed and sold. And that's with a population of between 2.2, the U.S. Bureau of Statistics are right, and 2.9, that's the highest it would be, a population, which means that there were almost two or maybe over two catechisms for every man, woman, and child in the whole nation. Now, how come there are so many catechisms out there? Well, one of the reasons is every school in the nation uh, had the catechism as a mandatory part of their curriculum. And homeschoolers also bought up these, these catechisms. You just saw them pervasively everywhere. Richard Gardner said of many schools, quote, their curriculum included memorization of the Westminster Confession and the Westminster Larger Catechism. There was not a person at Independence Hall in 1776 who had not been exposed to it, and most of them had it spoon-fed to them before they could walk. And so if you look at your, your notes, uh, worship notes on the back, you'll see some very surprising quotations. And there wasn't room to put all of them on there, and I'm not even going to read them all here, but take a look at the third one down. <clears throat> it says, These revolutionary principles of republican liberty and self-government taught and embodied in the system of Calvin were brought to America and in this new land where they have borne so mighty a harvest were planted by the hands of the Calvinists. The vital relation of Calvin and Calvinism to the founding of the free institutions of America, however strange in some ears the statement of Ranke may have sounded, is recognized and affirmed by historians of all lands and all creeds. He is saying that the Presbyterianism of John Calvin affected profoundly the the historical, I mean, the, the institutions that have been established in this land. Now, the, uh, the German historian that he was referring to, Ranke, is in the next quote. He said, John Calvin was the virtual founder of America. That's incredibly strong words. Virtual founder of America, but actually, you'll find other secular historians who will say that John Calvin's influence was not just on politics. His, his influence was also on the court system on education, on uh, what were some of the other things that they have mentioned, on economics. They said John Calvin's impact on America. You cannot understand America's unique history without understanding John Calvin, they say. Here's another one. Calvin was the founder, this is Daubigny, uh, Calvin was the founder of the greatest of republics, the American nation, which we have seen growing so rapidly, boasts as its father, the humble reformer on the shore of Lake Leman. Uh, historian uh, Bancroft, Calvin is the father of America. 
He who will not honor the memory and respect the influence of Calvin knows little of the origin of American liberty. Well, I would say most American Christians know very little or maybe nothing about the origin of Americans' liberty and its connection to ecclesiology. Okay, uh, this year, Timothy Terrell said, the influence that the colonial churches, especially Presbyterian churches, exerted before and during the war was more than circumstantial, it was decisive. And another Bettner quote, so intense, universal, and aggressive were the Presbyterians in their zeal for liberty that the war was spoken of in England as the Presbyterian Rebellion. And so it's no wonder that King George III called the revolution uh, the Presbyterian-Parsons uh, War. The second president of the United States, John Adams, wrote uh, a book entitled Liberty of Conscience Traced Back to Calvin's Geneva. Okay, that's the second president of the United States. I mean, this was common knowledge back then. People look at you kind of strange when you make assertions like this. They say, no way, it can't possibly be. But the idea of limited delegated powers was unknown except in Presbyterian-dominated countries like Switzerland and Scotland and in America. Uh, where would you go to find the idea of enumerated powers in a constitution? Well, you'd go to the Presbyterian creeds, the Reformed creeds in Europe and their books of church order because uh, they didn't uh, just allow churches to do anything that they wanted to do. They were ruled by a constitution, and the constitution could be amended if the amendments could be shown to be biblical. But enumerated powers, it was right in all of those things. Where did the idea that the powers not enumerated in the constitution to the federal government were reserved to the states or to the people? Well, it was in Presbyterianism, because the Presbyterians did not want a strongly centralized general assembly. Uh, they believed, and they had it written right out, that all powers in the church had to be explicitly laid out in the scriptures. They spoke of that as being divine right Presbyterianism. There cannot be anything in the church, they said, unless God has delegated it to the church. But they believed that the, 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 the key uh, or the, the most basic church authority belonged to the local congregation. And the things that were not delegated in the, in the constitutions then of the church uh, to the General Assembly or to the Presbytery belonged there. Now, they added, or to the people, because they believed even the local church had to have uh, everything explicitly given uh, through the Scriptures. Okay. Um, all Presbyterian churches in the 1700s, because of this, were, by definition, family-integrated churches. And uh, we've already given an entire sermon to how family integration in the congregation uh, works. And uh, they would have rolled over in their graves to see the high degree of centralization that goes on in mainline denominations and is increasingly happening even in our conservative Presbyterian uh, denominations as well. And so for those who say, who cares? What difference does it make, you know, what form of church government? We just want to know if there's great ministries there. I hope that you'll see there is a huge practical ramification to what kind of uh, government a church has. Now, I'm going to try to make this subject as easy to understand as I possibly can, which may enter into the danger of being a little bit too simplistic, but uh, hopefully it won't be. Today, we're only going to get to sub-sub-point A under theocratic republics, and I don't even know if I'm going to get to that. Um, uh, some of it will depend on the time that we have. I'm not intending to preach the entire outline, but I wanted you to have a little bit of a fuller concept of what church governments look like and what the differences between the governments are. I think next week I'm going to focus most of my attention on Roman numeral two, on the various types of powers that the Lord has given. 
And uh, depending on where we end today, uh, there may be a couple of other issues that I'll, I'll touch on. Now, what I've done under point number A is to group types of churches by comparing them to four types of civil government. And by doing it that way, I think I will bring to the surface the key issues of what types of authority these uh, churches wield. I think it'll be helpful to use that as an analogy. Now, as we examine these types of government, I think you'll also recognize every one of those types of government does capture certain biblical principles. And this is the interesting thing, because in early America, as they were in the Federalist Papers, Anti-Federalist Papers, and other discussions, as they were discussing what forms of government they have, they pointed out that the the Republican form of government takes the best principles from monarchy, from um, oligarchy, and from democracy, and weaves them together into a limited form of government that gives maximum freedoms to the people. It, it, it really is a, a neat thing when you, when you study the discussions of how the various governments relate to each other. And so some of the older writers sometimes referred to this form of government as a theocratic republic, um, whether it was the church or whether it was the state. Okay, the first of those four types of civil government could be called benevolent dictatorship. Now, sometimes this form of government can work very well. And I think of Oliver Cromwell as being an example of this. He did not like the monarchy, and uh, he wanted parliament to rule, but it was so corrupt and self-serving, he eventually ditched the, the parliament, and he ruled as a dictator. But he ruled in a very enlightened way, and I think they had peace and they had prosperity. Uh, it really was a fairly good uh, rule. Now, we Presbyterians got persecuted. You know, for the most part, I like Cromwell. I just wouldn't have wanted to live under him uh, necessarily as a Presbyterian. But he was a, he was a fairly uh, good ruler, fairly good um, dictator. And I bring him up as an example because sometimes people will think it's unfair for me to criticize many evangelical ministries as being dictatorships. And I say, well, they're benevolent dictatorships, you know, like Cromwell. God can work through those people, and he has many times worked through those people. I'm not saying God does not use those churches. I'm not saying he doesn't bless those churches. There are many fine, fine congregations, congregations that I love. Uh, where the pastor is utterly unaccountable to anyone, or where the head of the parachurch ministry calls all the shots, or where the bishop is not accountable. He's the one that calls all of the shots. One of my favorite churches growing up was clearly a dictatorship. Um, he appointed a board of elders, actually. And I remember once when I was in fifth grade, uh, there was a little bit of a, a controversy, and he didn't. some of the people on the board didn't want to go along with him. He just fired him and got new board members. And I remember as a child just thinking, whoa, that's a little strange. How in the world did he do that? But it was because he was the one who was the final authority. And basically, the, the board was acting as a rubber stamp. And yet he had an incredible ministry. It was a wonderful ministry. He was engaging, and God used him despite the defects in his uh, system of government. But there are real pitfalls to that kind of a church, whether it's an independent church where the pastor is ruling as a benevolent dictator or whether it's a denomination where some bishop is or maybe it's a mission board where there's some individual who calls the shots. There are many uh, difficult problems with that. In such situations, the head person is not accountable and he can run roughshod over the desires of the congregation. Let me just give you one example. Uh, I've heard complaints um, in Methodist uh, churches 
where there is a wonderful relationship between a pastor and a congregation. They love each other. He'd love to retire there. He'd love to be there all of his life. But the bishop has said, no, you're needed elsewhere, and he's out of there, and it destroys the continuity in the ministry. Now, there's a number of other problems you could look at. That's not the key issue, though. The key issue is not even that there's one individual there. The key issue is, are all authorities under authority? And we would say, absolutely, yes, they must be under authority. They cannot be acting independently. Well, what does the Bible say? These benevolent dictatorships will often appeal to the fact that every ministry that God has ever established in the Bible was established and was run by one individual. And that's true. And they will point to the fact that over and over again you find it's an individual that God gives initiative to, gives vision to, gives leadership uh, initiative to. And they'll point to individuals in the Old Testament. They'll point to individuals in the New Testament like Timothy and Titus and Paul. Uh, when they were on the team, then Paul had the initiative. When they were set off and they were doing their own work, they had the initiative in the things that they were doing. And, and you know, my response is, yeah, I don't disagree with that. I've got no problem with individuals heading up ministries if they are accountable to the elders. If they are accountable to the elders. In fact, one of the worst things you can do, in my opinion, is to run the entire church where everybody's Every ministry is being run by a committee. Uh, that's a great way to get into a quagmire and where you just can't go uh, any, any one direction. Uh, we have one individual who heads up Dominion Resource Center, one individual who heads up the, um, what are some of the other ministries? I mean, the ministries are headed up by individuals. They got their own checkbooks and they're accountable. And I, as an individual, am accountable to presbytery and the representatives that have been assigned to me to oversee the work here until such time as I get a board of elders uh, to, to whom I can be accountable on a, on a local level. In fact, by the way, when we do get elders, at the time that you, you elect the elders, you have to decide whether to call me as a pastor or not. Uh, it's not a foregone conclusion. You may decide to have a different pastor uh, because of the whole, the whole issue of representative government. And so we're not saying that micromanaging is a good alternative to dictatorship. That is the way many times the dictatorship ministries will present it as either this or this. Anytime you have a, a dilemma presented before you, ask yourself, are there any other options in between? Because many times it's a false dilemma and there's a wonderful solution uh, that uh, resides between uh, those two positions. Here's what we're saying. We're saying that all leaders must be accountable all must be subject to a church constitution. All must have limited powers. Now, let me read that again, because this is the crux of the issue of where we would differ with them. What we are saying is that all leaders must be accountable. And dictators aren't accountable to anybody, are they? they that's what's gotten many heads of ministry into trouble in, in America. Secondly, all must be subject to a constitution. Now, dictators, if they have a constitution, which is pretty rare, they write the constitution themselves. They can change the constitution anytime they please. So it's not a controlling document, and there is nothing about that document that's going to prevent him from being a tyrant. Okay? Thirdly, all leaders must have limited powers. Well, in a dictatorship model of leadership, unless though the dictator limits his own powers like Cromwell did, then, you know, what's to say that he has to limit it? In fact, even Cromwell, he changed those on a whim, you know, from time to time, uh, what kind of uh, powers that he would uh, operate by. 
And so all leaders must be accountable, all must be subject to a constitution, all must have limited powers. Now, if you look at the back of your worship notes, I've put a, I've put a verse there. It's the second quote, quote that, even sh- that shows that even the Apostle Paul was subject to authority, and he had limits to his authority. Now, this is huge. This is huge because if even the Apostle has to be subject to authority and has limits to his authority, how much more so uh, other officers? Uh, he cannot be used, like many people use him, as a, a defense of the dictatorship model. So take a look at the second quote there, 2 Corinthians 10, 13 through 16. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us. So he is saying, I've got limited authority. I've got limits to the sphere in which I operate. I can't go outside of that. There have been limitations put upon me going on. A sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. Now, what's the implication of that? Implication is there's a theoretical possibility he could overextend himself. He could go beyond the authority that was given to him. He denies that he's doing that. But you see here he's saying he's got certain restrictions and he has not overextended himself beyond those going on. Not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but in our sphere. Not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. So what he is saying here is that even the apostles had limits to their authority and they were accountable. Now here is the $10 question. Who were the apostles accountable to? And we can't say they're accountable to God. You know, dictators, everybody says, yeah, oh, yeah, I answer to God, you know, for my actions. Who are they accountable to? And the answer is they're accountable to the elders. In the Bible, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, the elders rule, period. They're accountable to the elders. Now, let me, let me try to demonstrate that to you. In Acts 13, it was the elders who commissioned Paul and Silas on their missions trip. Now, you might wonder, why in the world would would they have elders commissioning them on their trip? I mean, didn't God directly authorize them to be apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ and to go out? Why don't they just answer to Christ? Why do they have to answer to these apostles? Well, apparently there's no conflict in God's, God's mind because they fasted, they set them apart, they commissioned them, and then they, they report back. In um, Acts 15, Acts 21... When the Apostle Paul in Acts 15 had the controversy with the Judaizers over circumcision in Antioch, he did not exercise his authority independently. Now, if there was any issue, I mean, this is striking at the very heart of the gospel, this, this uh, issue of works being added on. If there was any issue that an apostle ought to be able to just say, this is settled, I'm putting down my foot, you're going to do it this way, period. This should have been that kind of an issue, but he does not do that. He works through the elders And when he cannot get uh, a clarification of this issue amongst the elders at the Presbytery of Antioch, what he does is he appeals to the General Assembly. Now, the General Assembly, which met at Jerusalem, was elders from all over the empire who traveled there, and they were representatives from churches. It's not a higher court. It's a broader court. It's bringing in a multitude of, of, um, of advisors, as it were. And Paul submits to their decision in Acts chapter 15. <clears throat> that was a general dis- uh, d- uh, assembly. He does the same thing in Acts ch- chapter 21. They correct him, and he submits to their decision. See, the issue is accountability, and if that was true of the Apostle Paul, 
how much more so should it be true of every one of us? Now, we're going to get into the Presbyterian principles related to that next week and the practical implications that flow from it. But for now, it's enough to know that while God has and he, he can use and, and he's blessed dictators and their ministries, it is not safe and it is not biblical to operate ministries in that way. Does that make sense? By the way, some people will point to the monarchies in the Old Testament. And they'll say, well, weren't those dictatorships? And I would answer, absolutely not. They were limited powers, and God had the king sharing powers between, there was a division of powers between the lower representatives and the upper house of representatives and the king. Now, later tyrants went beyond their limits of authorization and became tyrants, but there was more than once where there was a secession because the king was operating beyond the, the, the powers that had been granted uh, to him. So those were definitely, uh, Israel was truly a republic, not a dictatorship, even though people began to be, act like dictators later, just like they are today. Um, and again, I bring these principles up because each one of these systems of government does have something biblical, but they distort it because they're taking it out of context. And in this case, it's the context of accountability. Okay, a second form of government is oligarchy. And this is rule by a few unelected people. And when individuals in the ruling group die, how do they get replaced? Well, sometimes the uh, committee or the board will take, you know, a faithful, loyal family member. Sometimes it's a non-family member. Well, let me tell you something. If he ain't 100% loyal and he ain't been a servant for many years, you know, to this oligarchy, he's not going to get in there. Uh, it's the oligarchy that is self-perpetuating. They are the ones who determine who gets in and who does not get into, into that rule. Now, there were several ancient Greek oligarchies that you may have read about. Modern examples would be Indonesia, Singapore. Uh, you may have read about the 100, uh, 100 families in Indonesia. It's not literally 100 families. Sometimes it's 90, and it goes up, I think, in history. It's been as high as 130. Most oligarchies are much smaller group of ruling people than that. That's pretty unwieldy to have an oligarchy of over 100 individuals uh, who are ruling. But there are churches and there are parachurch ministries that are run by a self-perpetuating committee, and they are true oligarchies in every sense of the, of the word. They are self-appointed. They are self-perpetuating boards. They are unaccountable. Now, there are many cults that follow this. Jehovah's Witnesses would be an example of a cult that's an oligarchy. But you know, there are many wonderful, wonderful ministries that also run in terms of uh, this principle of oligarchy. I would call them enlightened and benevolent oligarchies with a servant's heart, okay? And, and God has blessed them. But there is no mistaking the fact that the authority rests in this oligarchy. There is no authority above the oligarchy to which people can appeal. And even the ones that have constitutions, which in my experience has been pretty rare they're written by the oligarchy and they can be changed at any time they're not controlling documents now many of the older missions agencies were either run by one individual monarchy or many of them were uh, oligarchies where everything was decided for you and i tell you some of the older missions groups were downright tyrannical uh, it was really tough to be operating uh, within the scope even though god did bless and use them there were many dedicated people but if you sent money to the missionary over there, many times you, the missionary never got it. He had to send a thank you letter, but
but the oligarchy decided where that money was going to go. They decided which station you would work on, when you got pulled, when you got, uh, if you even were able to come back to the station. You had to acquiesce to whatever they, whatever they said. And uh, there are terrible things sometimes where husband and wife were separated for a year, you know, for the sake of the kingdom. And uh, most modern oligarchies, you know, when they're operating in parachurch ministries or denominations, I would say, are not like that. They're more benevolent and uh, really are trying to look out for the interests of various people. And I don't know if it's because of some of the lawsuits that have happened <laughs> over the years. I'm not sure. But they're much more, uh, they tend to be much more uh, benevolent. Um, some people think of PDI. Let's just take an example as being a monarchy with uh, C.J. Mahaney being on the top. I don't think it is. I think it is an oligarchy. And uh, what he has is he's got an apostolic team that coaches and oversees the congregations. And this is one of the reasons you've got such uniformity. They're almost clones. All of the churches, almost clones of each other, 55 congregations that he's pastored. And I love PDI. I think that they're doing some fantastic ministries. In fact, I wish I could do half the things that uh, they're doing in their, in, in their denomination. So I don't want to be critical of them in that regard. But the thing that makes me worried about them is there are not the checks and balances within that system of government that you have in uh, Presbyterianism. Uh, can it work? Yes, it can work. And God does wonderful things despite our dis deficiencies. But there are major pitfalls. Um, no court of appeal. Often no controlling documents, controlling the actions of the oligarchy. Now, here's the question. Can they appeal to Scripture? The answer is, yeah, they can appeal to Scripture, too. Um, <clears throat> they have shied away from the abuses of dictatorships, and they pointed out that biblical ministries were subject to a group of elders. Uh, now many people have the illusion that because there's more people, you're going to avoid tyranny. It doesn't work in a country. It doesn't work in a church. But that's their motivation. They point out that in the Bible, churches and ministries are run by groups of people. And that's absolutely true. And you might think, no, wait a minute, Phil. I thought you just said that, that there was initiative that individuals have and, and ministries that were begun by individuals. Yeah, they're both right and they're both wrong. It's how it's framed. It's how it's put together that uh, comes out. But anyway, let me, let me just go ahead and show what they appeal to. Hebrews 13, three times, it refers to multiple number of people who ruled over that congregation. It says, those that rule over you. Those that rule over you. So there's a group of people who have authority. Acts 14, verse 23 says, they had elders elected in every church. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, that the churches existed before the elders did. And so that's to help balance things out. But that is a principle, that's an ideal that we need to look to. They had elders elected in every church. So there's multiple elders in the congregation. Now, if you look in your outlines down at uh, principle number E under theocratic republic, you'll see that's one of the principles of Presbyterianism. Acts 20, 17, Philippians 1, verse 1, they all indicate that there must be more than one elder in a congregation and until that happens, that congregation needs to be accountable to and under the authority of representatives from the presbytery, uh, just like Timothy was and Titus was and I am. Why? Because Timothy, uh, Titus did not yet have elders at his church. And Titus was charged to train and to have elders elected. And other churches will point to the fact Paul always had a team what they call apostolic teams. In the multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. So there are, there are scriptures that they can appeal to. 
And Presbyterians would agree, absolutely, multiple elders are essential in the congregation, but they would disagree with oligarchy on the following grounds. First, they violate the biblical principles that we're going to look at next week of enumerated powers, because without enumerated powers, I mean, there's potential for tyranny from a few as well, of limited powers, because who limits the oligarchy? Third, of delegated powers, I mean, who are they accountable to and who in the world delegated that authority to them in the first place? Fourth, of separation of powers, because there is only one power and it's in the oligarchy. And most oligarchies also violate principle number B under theocratic republics because most of them don't have elected representatives. Okay, they, they get into the office some other way. Oligarchies can lead to tyranny just as surely as dictatorships can. There's no court of appeal. Let me tell you something. If you are the one of the ones who has come under the abuse from some church, and there are plenty of abusive churches out there, you are going to be ever so thankful that you have the right of appeal and that you have, you know, the theocratic, the limited powers, the, the, the principles we're going to look at in, in Presbyterianism. Um, even Paul's, keep in mind that even Paul's apostolic team was accountable not just to report, but for correction of their actions. That's Acts 21 when the elders asked for a correction. Paul spearheaded a correction of Peter at the General Assembly, and Peter was corrected. So it's not just Paul that's corrected. In Acts 15, when the Presbyterian Antioch did not settle the controversy that raged, they appealed to General Assembly. And so they're appealing to a broader church court. What's going on here is people, they, the, God, <laughs> the Bible recognizes, sometimes people can be too close to the problem to look at it objectively, and there is a need for appeal. And the right to appeal is central to Presbyterianism. You're not a Presbyterian. You've got independent Presbyterian churches. They're not Presbyterian because there is no court of appeal. That is central to Presbyterianism. Okay, a third form of government is a democracy where a people as a whole decide all of the issues. And if you've got a 51% vote in the congregation, well, 49% can kiss their liberties goodbye, you know, if the 51% want to take it away. Uh, congregational vote is the highest authority. There is no appeal above the congregational vote. And because the idea of democracy is so misunderstood, I think I need to describe it a little bit, even in the civic realm, because so many people and politicians today say that we are a democracy. We are not a democracy. Um, uh, we're getting closer to being a democracy. You know, over the last hundred years, there have been quite a number of checks and balances that have been removed from our system. But we're still a constitutional republic, and, um, and it, it does not operate like uh, a democracy. Our founding fathers were even more opposed to pure democracy than they were to monarchy. And let me read you some comments from delegates who signed the Constitution. Alexander Hamilton said, We are now forming a republican form of government. Real liberty is not found in the extremes of democracy, but in moderate governments. If we incline too much to democracy, we shall soon shoot into a monarchy or some other form of dictatorship. In another place, he says, it had been observed that a pure democracy, if it were practicable, would be the most perfect government. Experience had proved that no position is more false than this. The ancient democracies in which the people themselves deliberated never possessed one good feature of government. Their very character was tyranny, their figure deformity. They didn't like democracies. James Madison said, Democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, 
have ever been found incompatible with personal security or rights of property and have in general been as short in their lives if they have been violent in their deaths. And that's why Chief Justice Marshall said, between a balanced republic and a democracy, the difference is like that between order and chaos. Now, even though in churches, democracies are much smaller and therefore a little bit easier to handle, whether it's on a denominational scale or whether it's on a local church scale, people who have been involved in those congregational meetings know the headaches, the long hours, uh, you know, of deciding which color the curtains are going to be and arguing over the budget and, and uh, going back and forth. There's caucusing behind doors and uh, there, there's just a lot of difficulties with, with uh, a democracy. Uh, now, there are varying, various uh, degrees of purity of democracy. You've got pure democracies like the older Quaker groups and some of the brethren that there is no government and everybody does everything as a whole. But most democracies nowadays in the, in the Christian church uh, function by electing officers but also voting on the budget and the color of the, uh, the, 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 the curtains in the, in the nursery. Now, can God use godly saints who function in a democracy? And again, I say absolutely, yes, he can. There are many godly Baptist churches, and uh, not all Baptists follow a de democratic method. There are some that have adopted Presbyterian policies because they have seen so many problems with democracy, especially Reformed uh, Baptist churches. But in many of these independent congregational denominational churches that are democracies, God has powerfully used them. I've had good fellowship with such. You know, every time a pastor comes to me pulling out his hair as to why things are not working, I bless the Lord that we've got a constitutional republic and uh, the limited powers that go with it because it's so beautiful and it gives such liberty. Now, they can appeal to Scripture as well. They appeal to Acts 14, verse 23. And it's a little bit obscured in the New King James Version because it says they had elders appointed in every church. But if you look in the Greek, the Greek word for appointed there is the Greek word, and the Baptists point this out, it's the Greek word that was used by the ancient Greek democracies for voting. Literally it means the raising up of the hands. Okay, And so that's, that's the technical word for voting in the democracies. They will also point to passages like Acts 6, verse 3, where it says the whole congregation was commanded to seek out men for office. And then in verse 5, it says, and the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen. So it's the congregation who chooses the, the elders. Now, the denominations don't do that, or denominations like the Methodists, uh, Roman Catholics, uh, Episcopal, there's other ones where they're appointed from above. They're not elected by the uh, congregation. So in democracies and in theocratic republics, we believe there's a clear-cut case for the election of officers. Now, here's the problem. Democracies frequently will um, assume that because the Bible uses the word, the technical word for voting, that's for the democracies in, in Greece, that the whole lock, stock, and barrel of democracy has been adopted as well. And nothing could be further from the truth because the same principle of voting for representative officers was found in Israel. Israel was the model, not, um, uh, not uh, Greece. And there have been American presidents and judges who have wished that the laws were different, but they limited themselves by the Constitution. Okay, They did not... Uh, operate in terms of their own uh, whims. Republics like Israel elected representatives, and those representatives could not 
rule according to their desires. They had to rule according to the Bible. And they couldn't rule in terms of the desires of their constituents. They were bound by their constitution. Now, the same is true of the church. Nowhere in the Bible do you see congregations voting for anything except officers. And once the officers are elected, you find the officers voting. Uh, even though the uh, congregation was present in Acts 15, uh, or uh, ordinary church members were present there, they didn't speak, they didn't vote, it was the apostles who voted, apostles and elders. Now, wise elected officials will listen to their constituents, but if they're God-fearing, they're going to be operating in terms of limited powers. They're going to be operating in terms of uh, the Bible. Otherwise, you have the potential on a discipline case or something else of the tyranny of 51%, you know, stepping all over the toes of the 49%. It's the tyranny of 1%. Um, General Assembly of Acts 15, Acts 21, they were open assemblies in the sense that our General Assembly is an open assembly uh, where anybody could be present, but uh, it was only the apostles and the elders who voted. Now, by now, you already sort of know what a theocratic republic looks like. And I think I will... I was planning to go on a little bit uh, more, but if you just look at principles A through G there, gives seven principles of Presbyterianism, and those seven principles are identical to the principles that you find in the Old Testament Hebrew synagogue. Um, God did not change his mind about how church ought to be run. It's run the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. And so I think I'm going to end there, and next week we'll pick up with uh, some of the, um, the issues, and they're very, very practical issues, you know, that deal with, with uh, you know, not only the authorities in the congregation, but what kinds of authorities outside the congregation. Can the church be incorporated?